I just want you to know as I, as I come to our text this morning and begin to, to look back in First Peter, um, what a unique experience it is for me to stand before you, the people of God, to read his word, to expound his word, and to do it the way we do it here at our church, verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book. Um, you, you are a unique people in that regard because I've been informed this week by a couple of different people about what is typical in the modern church on Sunday morning, and this ain't it. Um, matter of fact, I was even uh, I was surprised and humbled to hear how sad of a situation it is in, in a lot of pulpits on Sunday morning in America. How that God is the one who's left out of the service because they've neglected his word. And if we get anything right here at Sovereign Grace, I pray that as we read and honor God's word as we proclaim it. So that his word establishes our path, establishes our direction. And that's really why we study First Peter. And this is all just preliminary introduction here. Peter is very essential for us. And every word, every sentence, every chapter in this book is necessary and is purposeful for the Christian's life. Nothing here is peripheral. And so it's very important that we plod through these verses carefully. That's why we are going to continue on where we left off from last week. Before we do that, though, I do want us to pray because there is, there is no purpose in us going forward in our own strength because if we do so, we will fail and we will not understand the revealed truths here because they're spiritual and they're spiritually appraised. So we need the Spirit's help to understand the truth as God speaks to us through His Word. So if you would, just bow with me. Bow your heads before a holy and a sovereign God who cares for us even when we go through suffering and even when we have to submit in times that are difficult. If you would, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in full reliance that you have revealed what we need to us in your word. That we can trust in every letter, every word, every sentence, every chapter, every book. That in it you will reveal your glory and our good. And God, we know that you have given us First Peter to direct our paths First, to give you praise, to see you for who you are, and then to walk accordingly. And so, God, we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would open our eyes, that we would see your glory, that we would understand your will and direction for our life. Father, I pray that you would do this in what seems to be a difficult passage for us to apply to our own hearts because it's very convicting and it requires supernatural ability for us to submit and to serve and to suffer and Lord, we know that you are capable, more than capable, to edify and build us up to do this so that we would be established and trust in your care and testify to that trust as we go out into this harsh world that is corrupt, that needs to see the difference between those who belong to your kingdom and those who belong to this world. And God, we pray that you would set us apart this morning in your word and truth, that we would be aliens to this world, but we would be so heavenly minded, we would become of utmost earthly good. That is really what you have called for in your word in Peter. You have called us to be heavenly minded, God centered, Christ centered, and exalting your name and all that we do so that when we go into this world, everything we do in service to our government, in service to other men, in service to one another, we do so to reflect your glory 
and our confidence in your security and your grace. Help us today, God, to do that so that your name would be praised in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take another look at how God's sovereignty in salvation affects our responsibility as citizens of two kingdoms, alien citizens. Understand that we're going to look at how God's sovereignty, this is what Peter starts the book out with, how God's sovereignty affects our responsibilities. See, he's a king, and we, we serve a great and merciful good king, and that changes the way we respond to earthly kings, the way we respond to earthly authorities, because we, we serve the one who they all must give account to one day. They must all give account to God who delegates to them the place that they have in the earth. And we are serving Him and set free from fear of those around us when we serve Him faithfully. We actually exceed the laws and the rules of our government and our kingdom on this earth because we serve a higher king and a higher law which exceeds the corrupt systems of man. Martin Luther commented on something like this at one point in his ministry. He, he wrote this, he said, A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. We can all say amen, right? We like that. A Christian man is the most free Lord of all, subject to none. And then he went on to say, A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. That sounds paradoxical. And it would be if you didn't understand, have a complete understanding of confidence in a sovereign God who places us here temporarily for His glory. Puts governments over us for our good and for His praise. I think that's why we, we look in this book and we see that Peter, in 1 Peter, starts out the entire book by dealing with the theological terms that talk about and unpack the sovereignty of God, the rulership of God over our salvation of our service, of our suffering. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 1, you don't have to turn right there at this moment, but basically what he does, he sums up the doctrine of God's sovereignty and our salvation in chapter 1. That's what he's doing. He starts out in the deep end of the theological pool here. He starts out by overwhelming these people with the one who has called them to salvation. He is the sovereign king. Have no fear while you're suffering. You're scattered throughout all these regions. Have no fear though. The one who saved you, scattered you. He's protecting you. You're garrisoned by God, he says in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, Peter shows us that true salvation goes on from not only affecting us intellectually, but purifying us practically. He, he, he goes on to talk about how salvation produces sanctification. In chapter 2, we see that salvation or sanctification is first putting away all kinds of relational sins. That's what he talks about, dealing with the brothers in Christ, putting away relational sins and serving others in the body to build up the body, the household of faith, the pillar and support of the truth, which is the church. And then in 2.11, to the very end of Peter, to the very end of this book, we see how trusting in God's sovereignty over our salvation, over our security, over our suffering will affect us practically and publicly while we are on this earth. See, theology matters to the way we live. And so when churches, when I or anyone else would neglect the theological truths of Scripture, we are giving you nothing to do practically with your life. You cannot divorce theology from practice. Orthopraxy and orthodoxy go together. 
But if you have one wrong, you'll have the other wrong. So that's why Peter starts out with a right orthodox view of God's sovereignty so that you would be a faithful citizen, not only in heaven one day, but here on earth. This is where God called you. He didn't sweep you away, though we feel like we would like him to do that sometimes. He planted us here. Peter is trying to comfort some suffering saints here. Because you know this is going through their mind. Okay, God saved us. Now get us out of here. Get us out from under this corrupt system. We want to be above it. We don't want its restraints. It is oppressive. It is wrong. It is evil. So get us free, God. We are, we are yours now. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. But Peter says, you're also planted here for an earthly purpose. So take confidence in that. If you ever wonder why you go through suffering as a Christian for doing what is right, God puts you here to display what saving faith looks like when it's faced with suffering. Because in reality, we know that our suffering will cease one day. We, it will cease. But for those around us who do not know Jesus, their suffering will never end. So in the meantime, we are to glorify God while we're here. Declare His goodness. Declare His sovereignty. Declare His grace to the world around us so that they would see Jesus in our life. And by God's grace, come to faith in Him. Now, just a little review from last week. In verses 13 through 15, for those of you who weren't here, we saw that there are basically two responsibilities that we have as alien citizens here on earth. The first one was found in verses 13 and 14. talked about how we should submit to the will of God confidently. Submitting to the will of God confidently. He's the one who puts authorities over us, and we submit to His will in doing so. And number two, we, we were to silence foolish men powerfully. We submit to the will of God confidently. We silence foolish men powerfully with our with our obedient testimony we're not here to revolt against the government we're here to serve a higher king we're here to give him glory as we submit willfully to those over us that he placed over us where they tell us to go against god we stand and say no because we serve a higher authority at that point but but in reality we are put here so that we would actually help God's name be praised and glorified throughout the world because His work in us actually changes us and it silences those who would accuse us of either anarchy or apathy. So it's, it, we're here for that reason. And what we're going to see today is, as Christians, we also have a responsibility not only to submit to the government that God puts over us, but we're also to serve all men and be willing to suffer patiently. According to 1 Peter 2, 16-20, which is what we're going to look at this morning, you can turn there. I'll give you an outline before I read the text. Alien citizens have a responsibility to do two more things. Number one, serve all men sacrificially and freely. We'll see that in verses 16 and 17. And alien citizens have a responsibility to, number two, suffer for God graciously or patiently while here on the earth. So we're, we're, we're responsible to serve and to suffer in a way that would bring God glory and serve others. That's what we're here to do. It is our responsibility. Every single one of you as a Christian have a divine mandate from God. These are commands. These are imperatives. They're not just indicative commands. They're not just, you know, indicate you ought to do these things. No, these are absolute imperative commands. You must do these things. You're called to submit, to silence men, foolish men, serve all men freely, suffer for God patiently. That's what he's calling us to do so that God would be glorified and men would be 
edified. Men would be cared for. That's what we're called to do. In 16 to 17, we'll get to that in a minute, but let me read actually 16 down to 20 for the context. I believe I'll start at 13 so we can actually get a flow here. Peter says, submit yourselves. It gives us the purpose and, and why we should do it for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Verse 16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. This is two points here that talks about how we find favor with God through submitting and through serving and through suffering. And do so patiently, enduring it, bearing it up for God's glory and the good of others. It's interesting, just a side note, back in verse um, 13 and 14, he says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he goes on to explain a few of those. But he, this is not, there's more here than, than the ones he lists, okay? It's not, it's, it's, it's broader than this. He just simply gives us, in their situation, in this context, who they were having difficulties with, the government. Nero, those who are over them. But in reality, you, you realize there's a lot more other human institutions. We have, in government, we have laws. We have the Constitution here in our country. We have, not only that, we also have other human institutions God ordained. One being established in the book of Genesis. Husbands and wives. And one is to have rulership over the other. One is to have headship over the other. We also, within that relationship, we have another human institution. God ordained parents over children. Parents are to lead the children. Children are to submit to the parents. Wives submit to the husband. Husband submits to God. We have all these orders of, of submission that God's given us and human institutions God's given us, and it's really always for our good and His glory. It reflects His goodness toward man. But when you get down to verse 16 and 17, we can see that our service for others actually honors God and, and actually is good for all men. In 16 and 17, Peter tells us we're responsible to, number one, serve all men freely. Those basically who are governing us and those who are serving beside of us. When he says, basically, this, this broad, broad category of act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God, honor all people, he's actually covering everybody, every human in that sense. Act as free men. And what Peter is doing here when he uses that term, understand he has just told them one of the hardest things they could ever hear as people living under an a evil dictator named Nero. Submit to him without rebelling, complaining, or ignoring what he says. Matter of fact, submit to Nero joyfully, willfully as an act of worship to God. That's hard to hear when Nero is impaling your loved ones and setting them afire. It's hard to hear. 
So he tells us something to comfort us here. He says, act as free men. By calling them free men, what he's doing is he's speaking about their, their disposition, their new position in Christ. He, he's talking about the position of their heart. He's not talking about their position in the earth because obviously many of these people are slaves. Do you realize at the time that this was written in the Roman Empire, there were around 60 million slaves, 60 million slaves, all types, some that weren't slaves by their own will, but because they were in, basically captured, made slaves. Some, they were slaves by their own will. But what he says is, you need, to be, you need to realize something. Though you're being commanded to serve God as his slave by serving those he puts over you, you're actually free men spiritually. Matter of fact, you're the only free men on the earth. Those the, the only ones who are truly free. Again, he's not talking about their position. He's talking about their spiritual condition. He's talking about this is the condition of your heart as you live in this world under the, under the rulership of others. He's basically saying to comfort them as, as weary Christians, he's saying to them, listen, you're free now as a believer. You're free because of God's sovereignty. You're free from the power of sin because God has purchased you. God bought you. You're his slave. He paid for you with Christ's blood. So you're free from the fear of the penalty of sin. And you can willingly serve our Redeemer because we know that He is good and He has called us for a purpose while still on the earth. And He's telling us in, in 1 Peter that our true freedom comes from being set free from this slavery to sin and biblical freedom sets us free to serve not only Jesus but all men and to do so willingly. And we can do so because of what we know about God's sovereignty. God chose us. God planted us here. God called us into ministry so that we would reflect Him in our service to others. I mean, what a great testimony you have as a Christian when you, when you serve a rotten employer and you serve that employer willingly, faithfully, honestly, devotedly. I mean, you're, you're serving Him continually. And he is scratching his head saying, I can't understand this guy. I, I abuse him. I curse him. I, I, I harass him. And he still does, puts out more production than anybody else in the room. Why? And one day he may come to you and say, why do you have hope whenever I treat you so harshly? Well, let me tell you about the hope that lies within me. And that's his opportunity to evangelize. Peter wants us to know that we're free in that sense. We're free from the fear of tyranny because tyranny has been broken because Christ died for us. We're set free from the penalty of our sin. We're set free from our worry about our eternal destiny. I know that I belong to God. I know that I've been chosen. Nothing a man can do can change that in my life. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not an not a evil, unjust employer, master, or government can change my position before God. And he says, you're free now. You know this. This freedom will set you free to live differently in this world. So many times as Christians, we get really hung up in the temporal. That's why I said it's important to be heavenly minded so that we'll be of earthly good. The more you dwell and ponder the sovereignty of God, the rulership of Christ in your life the more faithful you'll be practically in this earth. The more you know about God's calls on your life and God's keeping of your life, the more faithful you can face persecution in this life. Because this life is not the end. 
It is the step between now and eternity. And God who called you, called you to reflect His glory while you're here. And He will equip, equip you to do so practically. And we see that throughout the rest of this book. The first chapter is theological, and the rest is, is practical. It's practical theology as you read through the book. In the first chapter, again, we see that we're set free from this world by God's mercy. His great mercy is how it's described. And, and what we need to understand is true freedom, according to Peter, is rooted in that mercy. True freedom is rooted in God's mercy, and that mercy motivates us to obedience and holiness. Look at 1 Peter 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy... Okay, freedom comes through the, the act of God who does something for us, who sets us free. We're slaves to sin. It's God who has caused us to be born again. So we're caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain something. To obtain what? To obtain an inheritance, which is an imperishable inheritance. It's an undefiled inheritance. It's an inheritance that cannot fade. It will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. For you who are protected or garrisoned now on earth, protected by God, protected by the power of God, through trust in Christ, through faith, for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. And even here in the first chapter, Peter says, this freedom from sin should do something to you practically. It should motivate you. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, it's, it's the mercy of God that brought us out of darkness and brought us into light that now motivates us to walk in freedom, motivates us to be obedient out of a thankful heart for His grace and His sovereign care for us. It also produces fruit in us by putting us in a place where we, His sovereign care over us puts us in a place many times, like verse 7 says and 6 says, that we'll go through various trials for a divine purpose. So it'll burn off the dross of this world and make us long for our heavenly home. You realize suffering does that, right? Suffering is a sovereign gift from God for Christians. It causes you to realize this home is not our home. We are alien citizens passing through. We are pilgrims on this earth since the day of our new birth, right? We're a long, long way from home. But in the meantime, when these sufferings come, it causes me to long for my true home and to live differently while I'm here on earth. True freedom, Peter tells us in chapter 1, verse 17, is purchased by Jesus, and it sets us free to serve God willingly from the heart. Look what it says in 17 and 19. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear, phobos, fear, during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of as the, of a blood, as the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And he goes on to describe how that love changes us practically. How true freedom that we have by being purchased out of sin and purchased by God actually changes the way we live practically. Look what it says in verse 20. For he was foreknown, who was foreknown from the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And then he says in verse 22, since you know this, since this freedom, this truth has came to you, that God has purchased you with the blood of Jesus, set you in this world. He has chose you out from before the foundation of the world. He has raised you up with him. Now you have hope in him. Since he's done all this, you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Again, it's, it's this truth about what God has done. This truth about what God has done sets us free to serve others willingly. It's what he's saying here. We love our brothers, not because, okay, I read Peter and it says I'm supposed to love you guys. No, because I recognize what God has sovereignly done to save me, secure me, and set me here on this earth to glorify his name. And I want to do so with all my strength, with all my power, with all my ability, and I want to share that love with others. And so I serve him obediently by loving you gratefully and thankfully from the heart. Again, this is real important for them to understand this because they, 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 they lived in a culture of slavery and suffering. And for the saints to hear what Peter is saying here, he basically says, the God who saved you by mercy set you apart for his glory and secured a place for you in heaven eternally, that God planted you here temporarily. And he's going to take care of you while you're here. And, and that's, that's important for us to know because we do get discouraged in this world. We do struggle when we are attacked unjustly, when we are attacked for our stands and our faithfulness to Christ. And it's difficult for us. And sometimes when, when, when you hear the truth of what you read in chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2, how he talks about our heavenly citizenship, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, we, we might, like the saints in that day, we might start thinking, God set us free from all this world. Therefore, I don't have to submit to this world's systems. I am in a higher position than those on the earth. I have a higher standing before God than those on the earth. I have a higher standing than the authorities that are here. But God says, may it never be. I put those authorities here for your good and my glory. That's what he goes on to say. He goes on to warn us, because I think that, was a, that could have been a temptation for the, the saints here that Peter's dealing with. The saints in Peter's day could have been simply tempted to say, since the government around us is corrupt and we've been set apart from that government, it no longer has authority over us, and now we should get instant freedom because we're Christians. And he says, no, that, that's not going to be the case. And then they, they may think, well, okay, then we're going to fight for our freedom. We're going to rebel against this authority because it's cruel and harsh and it's ungodly. And he says, no, that can't be the case either. You're not to use your freedom in Christ. Your freedom that you have now that you know that your, your place is secured in heaven, that you belong to a heavenly kingdom, God has redeemed you from the penalty of your sin, you don't use that freedom to rebel against God's ordained government. This text in verse 16, I, I, I don't know that I've ever heard it preached in context. It's been so misapplied. Act as freemen and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. He is talking about in your submission to those in authority over you. Don't use your new freedom of knowledge, of understanding what God has done for you spiritually. Don't let that be used as a tool for your rebellious heart against your government. Rather, let that transform your heart, set you free to obey God's will. That's what he's getting at. We can't use our freedom in Christ to rebel against these, these institutions God puts over us. He ordained them. He created them. That's what 13 and 14 says. God is the one who instituted these. 
He, he did so for our good, for our benefit. Look at verse 16. He says, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. What Peter is saying is, we must not use our new freedom, our new knowledge of the freedom we have in Christ. Don't use that freedom as a cloak for evil. Don't let the little agendas you had in your heart when you were a, a slave or a servant of the state or of a man or a system, and that bitterness you had toward that system and that employer or that, that state government, that bitterness that was there in your flesh before, now that you're a Christian, don't let that thing creep to the top and say, now I have an excuse to rebel because I'm above these people. I've been set free from this world system. Peter's saying, don't, don't use your new position in God's kingdom as an excuse to rebel or complain or ignore human authorities such as human governments, laws, parents, husbands, employers, the church, by the way, all of which were instituted by God for our good to, to basically hold back evil and to reward those who do what's right. When you rebel and you complain and we ignore the God-ordained authorities over us in the name of freedom, in reality, what we're doing is committing treason. We're committing treason against our true master, our true God, our true king. And understand, the reason I bring that up is sometimes people, people think that freedom in Christ sets us free to do whatever we want now. And the penalty for sin has been dealt with. Now I'm free to express myself however I feel because my sins have been dealt with once and for all at the cross. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. We're, we're set free now to serve. That's what he's teaching. We're, we're, we're not set free. Christians are never set free, never free to sin or rebel against God's will. Never. Never. You're never free to do that. We're, we're now, what we're free to do, we're free to resist sin. That's what we're free to do. We're free to resist sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We're slaves of Christ and righteousness. Now we can resist sin and unrighteousness. Matter of fact, we can resist selfishness and seek to serve God and others freely. God intends for us to do that while we're on this earth. If you read the bulk of the New Testament, you will find the, the commands to the Christian, once we're born again, once we're in the kingdom of God, is never to say, revel in your freedom. Sin all you will so that grace would abound. No, Paul says, may it never be. Matter of fact, use your freedom. Use your now God-given by grace ability to resist sin, to serve others and glorify God. That's freedom. When you're saved, you're set free from the domination of death and damnation. You're set free to serve God gratefully and thankfully from the heart of what you were created to do from the beginning. This is what God wants you to do. And there's no greater king, no greater master to serve than the righteous king, the benevolent dictator, which is be, would be God. And when you, when you serve him, which is amazing, when you serve him from the heart out of response to the theological truth in Scripture that God has revealed, when you serve him that way, you begin to want to serve others freely. And it's interesting, as you pour your heart into thankfulness to God for what he's done to save you, you all, the, all of a sudden start becoming very aware of the needs around you and you want to serve others continuously. You're looking for needs. You're desiring to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. And what's interesting about that is the more you serve them, the less you think about yourself. Sanctification occurs. It's the way God has ordained it. You ponder him 
the pondering of God's greatness and mercy toward you moves you to consider your brothers, to serve them, to bring him glory, to care for their souls so that you'd be set apart and you benefit for God's glory is revealed in when you do that through you when you do that. We can see that in the bulk of the New Testament. There's a couple of places I want you to see it at where, where Scripture's clear that our newfound freedom is this. We're free to resist sin and serve God and others. That's what you're set free to do. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. 8, 4 through 13. And this is a very interesting passage because if anybody knows about freedom, it would be the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, this man knew the Old Testament. He knew the law. He knew what it was like to be under bondage to a system that you could, you could never overcome, that you could never fulfill on your own. And then he knows what it's like to be set free from that in Christ and rejoice in grace. Yet look what he does willfully here. What he commands us to do willfully here is to consider others and God's glory rather than ourself. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Now, you know what's interesting about that verse? What Peter's saying is, I am free from this ignorance. I have freedom here. I am finally, because of God's mercy, I am not blinded like the rest of the world to think that there is actually something to this sacrificing of idols. I actually recognize there's no real God but one. That's freedom. And then verse 5 goes on to say, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So, so he says, see what the freedom I have? I have freedom to actually understand who I am and how I got here and what God has done for me and how God's working through me. Through his sovereign grace. And in verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol, until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this freedom, this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You, you want to know freedom? Freedom is this. I'm not enslaved to selfishness that says, I can do whatever I want, and if you don't like it, tough. No, I can see you out of a love for God who saved you. You're his child. Out of love for him, you're his child. I see that love that he gave to you, and out of response to that, I don't want to do anything to hurt you. That's freedom. Even if it requires me sacrificing something that I think that I have freedom to do. That's true freedom. Look what it says in verse 8 or verse 9. But take care with this liberty of yours and do not somehow, uh, let it somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat Things sacrificed to idols. I don't want to do this so, so I don't make someone think that it's okay to do what they're doing. Make them think that it's okay that I give them a stamp of approval. I'm concerned about their sanctification is what he's getting at. For though or for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother who, who 
for, or for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Jesus. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. That's freedom. That's freedom. Freedom is I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to take a stand for my rights. My, my life is now hid in Christ. And I can do whatever I do for his glory and the good of others and not regret it one bit. I can submit and not use my freedom as a covering for evil. Look at 1031. It's interesting. We use this verse a lot, verse 31, but we don't read it in its context often. We need to. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now, look, that's basically saying whatever you do in life, because he talks about the most mundane things, eating and drinking. That's just mundane life, right? In and out, day in and day out kind of stuff. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. But in the context, he's talking about eating this meat sacrificed to idols. But whatever you do in life, whatever it may be, you must do it, he says, in a way that would bring praise and honor to God. So you're free. You're free to do anything that would bring God glory. That's what you're free to do. Are you free to sin? No. It doesn't bring God glory. There's not freedom in sin. There's, there's a penalty for sin. Christ paid the penalty so that we could live under his rulership, under his guidance. As a matter of fact, that guidance changes the way we live in a way that helps others. Look what it says in verse 32. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Now, interestingly enough, it doesn't say don't give an offense to your brother only. He's saying don't give an offense to anybody in the culture or your brother. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Basically, he's saying don't do anything that would detract from your mission in the world by, in the name of freedom. Rather, do whatever you do out of concern for others and the glory of God. Serve all men freely. One of the other reasons, if you go back to 1 Peter 16, 2.16, you'll see that Christians are not free to sin. Because we, we are freed men spiritually, but we're also, in a paradoxical way, slaves. We're slaves. He says, not to use our freedom as a covering for evil, but use our freedom, the knowledge that we have in Christ, use it. Use it. It is the knowledge of salvation. Use it, the freedom that we now have been granted spiritually. Use that freedom as slaves of God. Your translation needs to read slaves. Bond slaves was written in to make people during the time of slavery feel a little bit better. The actual word in the Greek is doulos, and it always means slave. One who is completely submitted to his master. This is not optional. This is a doulos of God. We are slaves of the righteous one, though. This is the interesting part. You're, slave, you're a slave of the one who is righteous. And so whatever he commands you to do will be righteous. It'll be for his glory and the good of others. So we serve him willfully. Because it's not only for our good, but it honors him. It gives him glory. We see that Jesus himself did that, did he not? Jesus became a slave for our sake so that we would be saved, so we would be set free from slavery to sin, and that we would freely do what? Serve God in all men. See, Jesus became a servant so that we could be set free. 
to do what God has ordained us to do, is to glorify Him through the serving of others. Look at John 15. John 15, verse 15. Jesus Himself goes on to refer to us in the terms of slaves and free. But notice how he, he refers to us. He says, No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends. For all things that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you, the apostles here. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give. This I command you, that you love one another. Interestingly enough, he says, you're not slaves in the sense of you're not serving me grudgingly. I am your friend. I am your savior. I am your redeemer. But do what I say. He commands. He says, you're not a slave. You're not a slave like the world thinks of a slave. You're now mine. You're my child. I picked you out. I redeemed you. I chose you. I set my love on you. Now, out of response to my goodness and my grace, what should you do? Obey my commands. Willfully, freely. And what does God command for us to do? Honor him and serve one another in this corrupt world. So the world would see the church and go, what are they doing? How come in the church there is a unity when there is a diversity of people, when there are people that are more intellectual, people who are impoverished, people who are rich, when there are people who in the world system would not even come together any other time? Why is it they can come together and they can treat each other as equals, no longer slaves, no longer free, but one in Christ? Because God has done something to unite us through the work of His Son. God has sent His Son to redeem us, to set us apart, not as Jews and Gentiles, but as God's children so that we would reflect His glory in the earth. So the world would see the church and see how we interact with one another, serving unselfishly. They would see that and say, I want to know what that is. And the world has this love-hate thing going on with us because they see that, they want it, but they don't want it what it costs to get it, which is repentance, which is recognition of their sinfulness. And until God opens the heart and opens the eyes, they will not see it fully for what it is. But... Nonetheless, we are to stand firm and reflect God's glory in the world. We're not called to convert. We're called to display His glory. That is our calling. God does convert through the display of His glory, though. One of the ways that we display that glory is how we treat one another as Christians. Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, 5. Even in the relationship here that, that Paul gives of a slave-master relationship, which was not forbidden in Scripture. It was, it was part of the culture they lived in. But it's interesting that this, this whole relationship, because of grace, over time broke down. Because slaves who were Christians and masters who became Christians eventually stopped treating each other like slaves and masters and started treating each other like brothers. And that whole dynamic started to fall apart. And it's, it's interesting what he says, though. He doesn't condemn this slavery. He actually tells slaves how they should behave toward their Christian brothers and toward those who they serve. Be obedient. He says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. Now, interest, what he's getting at here is the same thing in Peter. Service that is grudgingly given is not worshipfully given. Okay? You're not really serving... God, you're not really worshiping God through your service if you're doing it grudgingly. And this even applies to your workplace. You know, we're called to work as unto the Lord, but if you're doing it complaining, you're not doing it the way God ordained it. 
You're to do it with sincerity of heart. And that has to do with the heart being transformed. And the more you, again, remember what God has done to send His Son into the world to be a servant for you, it changes the way you respond to those who you now serve. And your heart has been changed in a way that would bring Him glory. And He says you'll serve, verse 6, not by way of eye service, or just when guys are looking, just when the boss is looking. That's not the way you serve as a man-pleaser. But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, doing it from the heart, he says, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. See, he says, when the heart is right, when the heart is set upon what Christ has done for you, you will serve, you'll actually serve your master, whether he's good or bad, in a way that will benefit him, whether you're rewarded or not. That's what he says, with good will, render service, and you do so as to the Lord, not to men. Whatever good thing each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. God will reward that faithfulness. Not even if the, if the slave master never rewards you for it, God will take care of it. God will be with you. But it's do, you do this for their good. And again, it's interesting, when you submit biblically, it's typically in the New Testament always for the good of the person you're submitting to. We saw that last week in 1 Peter 3.1. Wives submitting to husbands so that their husbands would be saved by their good conduct. So always, even in the slave-employee-employer relationship, you must do so willingly from the heart as unto God for His glory and for their good. What Peter is getting at, if you go back with me to 1 Peter 2.16, he's talking about that we're now free to do what is right. We're now free to do what is right and serve others for God's glory from the heart. And what he's telling us is actually true freedom doesn't abuse the rights God's given us by rebelling against the authorities he put over us. True freedom is actually a response to those authorities over you of thankfulness and praise to God. And that comes internally and changes us practically. And and, and, and you see that practically laid out for us in 2.17. In, in 2.17, we have, we have four practical commands from Peter that summarize his teaching on serving and submission. And these commands tell us why uh, our testimony, or when we obey, tell us why our testimony is important here. Because in our testimony of obedience, we, we give testimony that we actually trust in the one who put us under these authorities. We trust in a God who is sovereign. Listen. I talked to a guy this last week who's going through suffering right now as a pastor. And he's going through suffering in a church that is refusing to hear the truth. Voted 70% to put him out. And he has chosen, because 75 is the percent needed to get him out, he has chosen to stay on anyway and serve them until they find someone to take his place. And he said, "I, I struggled with that though. I struggled with it. He said, I am a great Calvinist until it comes to things like this. Or my children. He says, when, when, I, when I start seeing difficulties come and suffering come to me or my children, sometimes I revert to an Arminian. And, and we have to really be aware of this. If, if we say wholeheartedly that we believe chapter 1 of 1 Peter as a church, that we need to believe chapter 2 should be our practice. If you disregard verse 17, you you can throw out your doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Because it's treason to say that you're going to pick and choose which one of these you want to do. It's rebellion against God. 
God, who sovereignly saved you, has placed you here to do what he says in verse 17. There's four commands. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. The first one, I'm going to go through these four. The first one is, number one, honor all people. And I would put it out beside that if you're taking notes. Honor all people generally. Generally, okay? So what that means is care for your fellow human beings equally. All right, equally, because they're made in the imago Dei, the image of God. All men are made in the image of God. But honor all people generally, and we're to do that because that's what God does. God values all human beings generally. He, he values all men generally. We see that in common grace. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God gives children to unbelievers as well as believers. That's common grace. God gives joy at times to the unbeliever and joy to the believer. But to the unbeliever, it's a general, common concern. But yet they're valued because they belong to God. He created them in that sense. They're not, he is not their father in the sense that we talk about father. He is our father because we've been adopted through Christ. But he is their creator. And he loves his creation. His creation is to reflect his glory. Though it's marred, all men do reflect the image of God to some degree. And what we are to do in honoring all people is we are to reflect God's value. Reflect God's love for all people in that sense. That we understand that Jesus was compassionate to all people, not just the elect. Jesus displayed compassion for his creation. Turn over to Mark 6 to see that. Mark 6. Mark 6. 33. And here we see... God's general compassion, Jesus' general compassion for all men generally, okay? For all men generally, okay? Because what we see here is we know at the end of the story, this is the feeding of the 5,000. We know at the end of the story, right? We know that after, the, after he comes back across the, the sea and there's those people there, all they wanted was bread and loaves. They weren't believers. They weren't disciples. Yet, look what he knows. He's omniscient. He knows this already, Right? But we get to verse 33, we see that he values all men generally. Because look what he does in verse 33. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and what did he do? What did he do? He felt compassion for them. Why? Why did he feel compassion for them? Because they're all going to be saved? No, that wasn't the case at all. But they all belonged to God. They were needy. Because they were all like sheep without a shepherd. And they began to teach, he began to teach them many things. Now notice, he's not selecting just the elect to teach. He's teaching all men because all men need to know the glory of God, the revelation of God. He chooses to, to disclose his truth to all these men. That's compassion. No man is worthy of compassion from God. We're all enemies. We are all battle against God. Yet God is showing compassion to even his enemies here. When it was... Already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that we may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. Wait, what did he just do? He's, he's rebuking his disciples saying, You bunch of selfish guys. I feed you all the time. Go take care of them. It's compassion on this crowd. 
They said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And this is so funny because this is, this is the greediness of these guys too coming out. They still need sanctification. In verse 38, and he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they had found out, they, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking upward, looking up toward God, or toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. We see there that, that God, that the Lord Jesus, showed compassion generally to all men. That's what this command in Peter is telling us to do. We are to reflect who then? In our, in our honoring of all men generally, who are we reflecting? The Creator, the Savior. You know, it's interesting in this case because in 1 Peter 2.17, when Peter says this, he's speaking to a culture that does not honor all men equally. They're slaves. Many of these people were treated like livestock and animals. He's elevating their love to the place of Christ-like compassion. He says, these are God's creation. Recognize, you believe in a sovereign God. You believe that he is the creator of the world. These are his people that he made. Care for them generally. Have compassion on them. Reflect the Savior, the creator. And secondly, in 2.17, we see that we're, we see a little bit of an elevation of this. If you'll notice, there's a, there's a progression in these four commands, actually three commands. There's a progression. We start out with a general kind of love, then it gets a little bit higher degree of love, and then we get to the highest degree of love. But the second degree of love is love the brotherhood. And we're to do so sacrificially, not generally, sacrificially. We are to care for our brothers and sisters sacrificially. We do this because God loves his children sacrificially, right? Sacrificially. We, we, we follow his command here. We, we reflect God's love for fellow Christians by loving. And the word here is agapeo, agape. We, we, we give sacrificially to our brothers and sisters without wanting something in return. That is Christ-like love. We do that because Jesus sacrificed for us in that way. He loved us. And we are to love others like he loves them, our fellow brothers and sisters. Look at John 10. Loving the brotherhood, I, I use the word sacrificially, but in reality, it's, it's a desire of our heart to give up something for the sake of others, that, that our brothers in Christ. Because in reality, we're not giving anything up. We're sharing in the grace that we've been given. And we all benefit. And God is praised when he sees his children loving one another the way he loves them. Look at John ten eleven. Jesus loves sacrificially. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, what, what you need to understand is, this isn't a general kind of love. This is specific. This is limited love in that sense. It doesn't say anywhere in John 10 that Jesus laid down his life for people. Just for sinners. He says he laid down his life for his sheep. Christ didn't die for goats. He sacrificed. He 
He gave his life sacrificially. He bled and died, not for the world in that sense of every single individual. He bled specifically and sacrificially and substitutionarily for his children, those that God the Father would give to him. And those who hear the truth about this and do not come to it, they were never his to begin with. But what he's telling us is this is the way God shows his love. He has a people and he's willing to send his son to die for the people, to sacrifice his life, to redeem his children. Therefore, we are to sacrifice ourselves in many ways for the sake of our brothers. Giving up things that we don't need for the sake of those who are in need. We do that through all kinds of gifts and and care for one another, not only here, but globally. We're to imitate the love that Christ has given to us. Look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, we see that. Ephesians 4, we're commanded here in 4.31, all the way down to 5.2, to reflect the love of Christ in our relationships with our brothers and sisters. And this is the context of what he's talking about here in verse 32. It says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This is the way you are to, to relate to one another as Christians. And this, is, this requires agapeo. This requires true God-like love. Because not everybody is lovely. Even if you are a Christian, I'm not always lovely. Are you? No. Yet, does, does that change your relationship with God? No. Does it change your relationship with others? Sometimes. But as Christians, that, that is... The way you relate to me doesn't determine my love for you. I love you because I was loved by God when I was unworthy of love. Therefore, I can love you even when I don't think that you're lovely. Most likely, my not thinking you're not lovely is probably because I'm not lovely. And I'm selfish. But here we can give sacrificially. He says, do this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God. You're imitating God when you do this. You're you're imitating him as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. God sacrificed greatly for his children. So we are to love our brotherhood sacrificially, love one another sacrificially. Now, back in 1 Peter 2.17, we go go on to see how this elevation of honor goes from one stage to the next. And now it it culminates, it, it peaks out at the highest point here in verse 17, there where it says, fear God. And we are to fear God, according to this text, reverentially because of his sovereignty. Reverentially because of his sovereignty. And what he's saying is fear God, care about God, not, not generally, not sacrificially, but ultimately, completely. Fear God above all things. If you fear God as you ought, you will honor all people. You will love the brotherhood and you will honor the king. This is what Peter's point is. We, do, we honor him because that's what God commands us to do. And God is worthy of honor because he is the sovereign. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. Look at Psalm 145. Psalm 145, 9. Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. 
to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall, raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will hear the cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. That's why we are to do this ultimately and reverentially because he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the redeemer. And he is the sovereign who is our ruler, who commands us to do what he's saying in 2.17. The word for fear there is phobos, phobia. It's reverential trembling. It's a fear that overwhelms you. And it doesn't overwhelm us as believers in the sense that we are afraid he's going to punish us. But we are overwhelmed by his mercy toward us. By his sovereign grace toward us. And the fact that he controls everything and he knows our own wicked hearts and he should have cursed us. But instead he cursed his son in our place. That produces reverential fear in us. And a willingness to serve a majestic savior. A great redeemer and a sovereign king who cares, protects and keeps us even while we suffer in this world. We can suffer even when we have to go underneath those who he appoints over us, those delegated authorities and leaders and government that aren't honorable in and of themselves. That's what he goes on. He finishes the commands here by telling us to honor the king. Now, honoring the king, I would say honor the king temporarily. Temporarily, because the king is temporary. There is a king coming who is not temporary. And he is the one who rules all things now, even the kings of this earth, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. We are to honor the king that is temporarily over us on the earth. The authority over us on the earth. We are, interestingly enough, to care for him, not as an equal, or as an equal, not as a God. The reason I think there's a progression here, of one, two, three, where it gets ultimate with God, fearing God. And it drops back, notice, he drops back and uses the same phrase that he used in honoring all men. He doesn't say, love the king, fear the king. No, he says simply, honor him like another man. Honor him as an equal. And in the time that Peter wrote this, it's very significant that he said that because they were living under Nero who said, I am God. I am a God. And what Peter's doing, he's, he's, he's deflating Nero. At the same time, he is saying, look, to these suffering Christians, honor this guy because he is nothing more than a man appointed by God, an instrument of grace to you. He is to keep back evil and he is to reward those who do right. Have no fear. God is in control of this temporary situation. And, and we are to, to be, take comfort in that because God is the one who raises up kings and brings down kings, right? And we know that he is temporary, but he's also put there for our good and for God's glory. Even, even through this persecution, the church was purified. Again, through suffering, those who are here on the peripheral, those who are here only superficially, they will depart when suffering comes, when persecution arises. But the true believer will persevere to the end. 
what we're supposed to do for our leaders is honor them. And if you read Timothy, you can see, I'm not going to go there now, but if you read in Timothy chapter 1 or chapter 2, 1 Timothy, you see that we, what we are to do, how we are to respond in honoring all or our kings, our leaders. We are to pray for them. We are to pray for them. We are to pray for their wisdom and pray for their salvation. We're to pray for their salvation. And just stop and think about that for just a minute. I'm, I'm getting close to the end, but just think about this. Instead of rebelling and revolting, complaining and ignoring the authority God put over us because we don't like who's in the White House, pray for his salvation. And, and you know, amen in me on this is great, but doing it is better. Okay, I... There is no point in us saying we believe this is a command from God and that he is the sovereign who puts this king over us, this president over us, this legislature over us, unless we believe that we're going to truly fulfill God's command to honor him the way God has ordained it so that we would submit when he is not telling us to go against God and that we would pray for his salvation and for spiritual wisdom that comes from God as he leads our country so that we can lead a quiet life and evangelize while we have freedom. Second, the second point in the, in the text in 1 Peter 2 is covering from verses 18 to 20. I'm going to cover these rather quickly. But we see our responsibility as alien citizens is not just to serve, but to suffer for the Lord's sake, for God's sake, patiently or graciously. And understand this. This is where it gets kind of a little bit more practical for you because he's, he's sort of moving from the governmental authorities over us to the individual authorities over us. And basically what he's saying is, you have a responsibility as an alien citizen to suffer patiently while employed on the earth. Employment and, and service while you're here on earth. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Wow, that is hard to do. I have my own business. Obviously, you guys know that here, but I have so many bosses. It makes my head swim sometimes. And showing all respect to all of them is difficult for me sometimes. <laughs> I rewrote an email three times to a customer this week because my sinful heart wanted to rebel against my boss. But God's word convicted me. And the, the response was phenomenal, too, to what I finally ended up writing. By God's grace, peace was brought about and joy. And this is a fellow Christian as well. So God is to be praised in that. But we all suffer under sometimes not so favorable positions here on earth, right? But he's telling us to be submissive with all respect. The word servant that's used here, servants be submissive, it's not doulos this time. This is not the word slave this time like we think of here. It's actually household slave. It's, it's, it's not doulos, it's oikates, oikates. Oikates. It means a domestic servant. And, and that's how we can kind of apply this over into our positions now as an employee-employer relationship here. He's talking about one who is reliant on another to give him life and sustain him. That's what a servant was here. He was a household slave. Okay, He was sometimes considered one who chose to put himself into slavery to serve a person to get himself out of debt. Right? Then sometimes at the end of their indentured servitude, they decide, I want to stay with this family and serve them completely the rest of my life. So this is a slave that's there to, to serve those he lives with, those he, is un, those he 
or is serving under, but he is not to do so like the doulos many times does. The doulos slaves at this time, they did not have a choice about submitting. All slaves are called to submit, but very few did so reverentially or respectfully or willingly. And what Peter's doing is he's commanding a change of heart here. Servants, be submissive because of what God has done to you internally. Changed your relationship with God. Now you are a slave of Christ. So now you can serve your respected masters willfully from the heart. Because you're trusting in not their guidance, not their protection. You're trusting in your heavenly father who puts you in this position. Don't do it like eye pleasers or bitterly, but do it eagerly. That's his idea here. Reverentially, respectfully. Peter's commanding us to respectfully submit to our masters or we could say employers. Now, again, this is the hard part. We have this we have this instant when we hear be submissive, respectfully submit to your employers. The the heart of the man and woman here that works for someone who's harsh goes, but you don't know what my boss is like. He is unreasonable. Matter of fact, my boss is crooked. My boss is wicked. Well, he's included. Look what it says. In verse 18, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to contrast, but also to those who are unreasonable. The word unreasonable there is scolios. Come, we get the, the word scoliosis from it. What does scoliosis mean? But crooked. Wicked is the idea here. Deceitful. Wow. We are told to submit respectfully even to the crooked. Now, that doesn't mean in our culture that we should submit and do something crooked. Because here's where we have the option in our culture. We can quit. We can leave that situation if it's illegal. But just because he's a jerk is not an excuse to leave. It's actually more of a reason to stay because you have something to give that person that he doesn't have apart from your witness. He needs to hear and see what the gospel looks like practically. And Peter goes on in verse 19 to tell us why we should do this, why we should suffer patiently. He says this finds favor uh, this finds favor. And he's talking about finds favor with God. It pleases God. The fi- find favor means to please God. This finds favor with God. It pleases God. For if the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. The, the word sorrows here has, has, has nothing to do with beatings. This word sorrow has only to do with mental sorrow, grief, and distress. This is a mental sorrow. And, and the reason they're mentally sorrowing is because they're suffering unjustly. That's what he's saying. They're, they're suffering unjustly. Basically, that means you're being a good slave. You're being a good employee. You're honest. You're diligent. You're faithful to the business. And yet you're unwavering in your testimony for Christ. And you're persecuted. You're made fun of. You're accused of all kinds of things unjustly. And, and it's, it's interesting, again, our bosses, our employers, and the un, ungodly, they love having us as employees because of all those other reasons. We're, we're faithful, we're diligent, we're honest, but they hate our presence because we're convicting. To some, we're an aroma of life unto life, and to some, we're an aroma of death unto death, a stench of death, because we expose them. It's kind of like when Jesus showed up on the scene with the Pharisees. They looked really righteous until Jesus shows up, and then they looked really dark. 
Righteousness exposes darkness. So our presence makes them uncomfortable. They receive sorrow because they are being a faithful testimony. But he tells them, bear up under this because it it brings God pleasure. Verse 20 says, For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated and you endure that with patience or it with patience? I mean, that's, that's, no, that's a no-brainer. I mean, if you, if you get punished for breaking the rules, that's, that makes sense. What he says is, but if you do what is right and you suffer for it patiently and you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. Verse 20 says, when you do this, when you suffer for his sake, for standing up for the truth, for being faithful, for being unwavering in your commitment to Christ and honesty, and you suffer unjustly, this finds or this pleases God. I think what Peter's getting at is it pleases God basically this, in this way. It pleases God when he sees his children faithfully and patiently trusting in his sovereignty when they go through suffering. Because that's what happens, right? When you go through hardships and suffering for doing what's right, you turn your eyes to Jesus. And you say, Lord Jesus, you put me here and I don't understand why I'm going through this. I need your help. I am weak. I am weary. I can't defend myself anymore. And he says, good, that's what you need to understand. I will be your advocate. I will be your defense, your rock. Trust in me. I will vindicate you in the end, even if you suffer continually. Jesus comes with a sword to bring righteousness to the earth. No one will escape his judgment. Not one unrighteous employer or government, they will all bow before the King Jesus and say, worthy is the lamb. They will all say he is Lord of all. And they will all say, woe is me. I am undone in his presence. For I, I treated his children with disgrace. I was his delegated authority and I abused his children and he will punish me. Peter's telling us we can endure patiently if we understand these truths about God. We can patiently endure instead of rebelling at work because we trust in a sovereign God who put us there. And He's in control of every situation. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God this morning? Do you believe He is the, the ultimate? He is to be feared and revered? Then understand, every situation in your life, in your family, in your workplace is in His control. Let that comfort your soul. When you suffer unjustly. That's what testifies that we really believe our theology. Our theology teaches that God is sovereign. Not only over salvation but over suffering. God's not in heaven going. My poor children. I don't know how they got into this. What am I going to do to get them out? No. All things work together for good. For those who are called and loved by God. Even suffering which burns off the dross and brings the pure gold and faith to the surface so that when people see us as we suffer, they see a reflection of Jesus. That's what suffering accomplishes for the Christian. We die to self. Christ is magnified. The world sees Jesus when we suffer correctly and biblically. One one more note. Um, You notice... Peter tells us what pleases God, what brings favor with God. And notice that Peter doesn't say God is pleased with correct theology. Doesn't say that. Doesn't, does it? 
Instead, it says that God is pleased with correct theology that transforms us practically and publicly. That's what we see. You can give me all five points backward and forward. You can disclose to me your depth of knowledge of systematic theology, but unless you're doing it practically and doing it publicly, you don't believe what you profess. Because if you believe it, it's going to transform the way you live in this world. Now, I'm not playing down theology. I'm not playing down correct understanding. What I'm saying is, God has given chapter 1 to move us to active obedience in chapter 2. So that what we believe becomes a reality to the world around us. That's what I pray will happen as we study the continue, continue to study through 1 Peter. And next Sunday, pray for the last passage, last few passages as we celebrate Christ's suffering and the incarnation at Christmas time. If you would, bow your head with me and let's pray. Lord, we, we come to practical passages of Scripture as in Peter here. And we are humbled and we are amazed. Yet we, we know that when we have chapter 1 to undergird what we read in chapter 2, we are comforted because we are granted through the knowledge of what you have done for us, the ability to suffer and to submit and to serve, even in times of difficulty. Because you never leave your children. You never forsake us. You always abide with us. You always protect us. You always produce something good through what we suffer. God, that is an amazing truth that should comfort us. God, I pray that you would be praised as we apply these truths, that you apply to our heart today through your word. We apply them in the way we live and the way we walk this out in the world around us. Let your name be praised as your church moves forward in sanctification out of response for your sovereign grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. chains are gone I've been set free my God my Savior has ransomed me and like a flood His mercy reigns mending love amazing grace
Keeping an attitude of prayer today. Um, God is great. Through what Randy said, we have been set free. Within that freedom comes responsibility. God bless you. And uh, we'll take a little break, about 10 minutes. Thanks. <laughs> 